Welcome everyone. I'm Diane Mayer. I'm the Head of School and Dean of the Sydney School of Education and Social Work and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you here for this evening's event um, with a discussion about how can schools be relevant in the 21st century. But before we begin proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, because it's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And as we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within the University of Sydney, we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within Aboriginal custodianship of country. As I said, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you here this evening. Um, this event has, as you can see, uh, attracted a lot of attention. And I'd like to take the opportunity very briefly to thank Sydney Ideas, our group here at the university, for helping us to organise this. I'd like to also thank Professor Michael Anderson for being uh, central in getting this all organised, and Rosina Gallus also for helping with the organisation. It's my pleasure to introduce to you um, your chair for this evening, Dr Phil Lambert, PSM. Phil has extensive experience in education, including as Assistant Director General, Regional Director and General, General Manager of the Australian Curriculum at Hakara, where he led the development of Australia's first nat national curriculum. He's authored books, presented keynotes at national and international conferences, and has an, had a number of articles published. Bill's also been a member and continues to be a member of a high-level committees, task force and various boards. He's currently a board member of the Australian Children's Television Foundation and he's also the chair of our school dean's advisory board here at the University of Sydney. He's also an adjunct professor with us here at the University of Sydney but also at Nanjing Normal University in China. He's president of the New South Wales Australian College of Educators and director of Phil Lambert Consulting. Over to you, Phil. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. You've got a lot to live up to. <laughs> I tried to come up with some clever name, but I couldn't, so I came up with a very dumb name uh, after me. Uh, thanks, Di, and um, congratulations to you too on the concept of uh, these uh, events, and uh, congratulations to everyone for coming out on such a yucky night, um, yucky day. It sounds like it's going to be a yucky weekend or week, uh, the same kind of weather. Uh, and obviously you wonder what brings people out um, uh, on nights like this. Well, it's a great topic, uh, a tremendous topic. And of course, what we have uh, at the end, after the conclusion of the panel session, um, we'll have a short break, you know, five minutes while the wine and cheese and other things are brought in and then we're going to actually have the launch of the book, Transforming Schools, uh, here, um, by, uh, written by the fabulous Miranda. Uh, Jefferson is on the panel here and uh, equally wonderful uh, Michael Anderson. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> And so... Um, 
this that's one of those kind of moments where you can sneak out if you if you want to, uh, not beforehand, obviously. Um, uh, but of course, I would you know encourage you to stay on, uh, not just for the wine and cheese, but for to uh, hear about the book. Uh, and uh, I can tell you, it's um, I've got advanced ready uh, of it, and it's fantastic. Uh, look, let me introduce our, our panel tonight on uh, how can schools be relevant in the 21st century. And what I'd say right from the start uh, is uh, there's no one on this panel that's anti-school. So if you came here wanting, you know, we're expecting that someone here is going to be um, anti-school and, and uh, have that kind of uh, um, ideology, that's not the case. We're all pro-school here. Um, what we're also pro is continuous development uh, and making sure that um, the opportunities our young people have uh, for their future um, are ones that uh, will equip them, uh, not only for circumstances now, but the kind of world they're going to um, exit into. The way it's going to run tonight is uh, we're going to um, each have around 15 or so minutes. Um, we've limited to three slides each, something like that. Um, and then uh, I'll ask a question uh, just to get things going of the um, particular speaker uh, and then open it to the floor um, to, um, to speak, uh, to ask a question. If you can make the questions quick um, and more question than comment, if that's possible. Uh, and then we, but we do want to move it on so that we get an opportunity to hear each, each speaker and their perspective. Um, on our panel tonight, we have, I guess I should continue the theme of the fabulous, the fabulous um, Greg Whitby, who's uh, Executive Director of the Catholic Education Office of Schools in Parramatta Diocese. And many people would know Greg, um, not only for that role, but uh, he... Um, he's a writer, um, often appears in the media, uh, and, uh, and also has, uh, you know, in terms of social media, has an amazing presence uh, with his uh, views and perspectives and his advice. So just, it's just fabulous to have, to have Greg. Um, Greg will, be, will speak just after. I'll do some uh, introductory um, uh, comments myself. Um, Miranda Jefferson, uh, who's the founder and uh, innovative practice leader at uh, 4C Transformative Learning, uh, an organisation that works with schools uh, and uh, as you can um, take it from the title and the title of the book, Transforming, it's about tra transforming schools. Um, and she also uh, works as one of the system uh, Leadership learning teams uh, in uh, the Parramatta Diocese. So, Greg Smart, he's got a fabulous person uh, working for Parramatta. Uh, professor Michael Anderson, uh, Professor of Education here at the, at the University in the Faculty of Education and Social Work. And Michael uh, writes, um, speaks on a range of topics, but as the author of this book, it, clearly identifies the perspectives he brings uh, and certainly his uh, passion, uh, understanding and expertise in the arts and across a range of areas and uh, technologies uh, 
uh, ensures that we'll get, um, obviously from him, a fabulous um, speaker as well. And the fabulous, fabulous uh, Robin Evans. Um, I, I've had failings in my life. One of the great failings I had in my life was to transform this wonderful woman from uh, a great leader in schools to be a bureaucrat. Um, she knew better uh, and turned me down. I don't know how many times she turned me down, but um, uh, a great, great leader now in her fourth principal of the fourth school. Um, and uh, and not only that, uh, Robin, uh, she's principal of Casula Public School, but also uh, deputy president of the Primary Principals Association. So she's playing a key role, policy advice to government through that role. Uh, and, and once again, uh, she'll bring a different perspective. Each of us will bring a different perspective to this topic. Uh, so some of us will talk from here, some of us will be up there, uh, and I'm the first, so if you can give me a moment to, to move to, uh, over to there where the slides are and so on, and then we'll start. So I think I've already done that, introduced uh, our topic and our speakers. Uh, oh, there we go, and it's me. Okay, so how can schools be relevant in the 21st century? I thought I'd start and uh, with a, a, the question really why, you know, why are we asking this topic? Uh, why do we have this topic? Why are we saying this? And what I've listed there are a whole range of uh, uh, matters that are being talked about globally. The work I'm doing in my own, uh, through my own company, I'm contracted to work with the OECD. I'm leading a, a, a three projects that are part of Education 2030 working with 22 countries uh, and Education 2030 effectively started in 2015 and projecting 15 years to a, a five-year-old in 2015 will be 20. What is the uh, kind of world that they will emerge into uh, and how equipped are they? Um, it's about competencies and it's not about the old competencies that we've talked about in the past. It's really new competencies. Uh, and uh, what I've got here, I won't read each of the dot points there, but effectively, this is the world we're in now, um, the complexity of the world, and uh, the question how relevant we are in our schools. Are we equipping our young people to be able to cope with this? Uh, and uh, COPE's probably not the complete um, expression there. How do, we, uh, how do we equip them uh, for life and for thriving work and for having um, a, a life where uh, their well-being is best catered for? Uh, is the curriculum effectively preparing them um, the actual curriculum that they experience in the classroom, uh, what's delivered, um, how schools uh, as a, uh, if you like, a community, uh, are they preparing students? So what is, uh, and part of this work that we're doing uh, with the um, Education 2030 framework is uh, we're not jettisoning old knowledge or old skills or old attitudes or old values although there's some of those um, and in some respects a good chunk of those 
um, that are really up for uh, being questioned, whether they remain relevant. Uh, and there's certainly new knowledge uh, and there are capabilities one needs to create new knowledge. Uh, there are new skills and skills that have been talked about um, in the workforce uh, often referred to as soft skills that are actually now taking a more prominent role both in terms of employment but also what we know you need for life. Uh, attitudes uh, uh, that are new about um, diversity uh, and about um, coping yourself with um, your own learning and your own capabilities and values um, that are new as we create um, new products, as we uh, as the world changes and we know more about ourselves, there are new values that uh, we need to consider at least um, the extent to which these should be taught or at least experienced in schools or modelled in schools. So problem with this, this is the how problem um, overload. I gave a paper in Lisbon three weeks ago to the 22 countries involved in Education 2030 and it was about curriculum overload. They wanted the question because they effectively were saying all of us have this problem um, and we get con concerns from principals, from teachers, uh, that there's just so much that has to be covered that you skate over so much. It's a very thin delivery and there's no deep, deep learning. Singapore um, has a wonderful expression in the efforts that it's undertaken to reduce curriculum and that's teach less, learn more. Um, and really what they've done is to look at effectively every dot point and put it under the microscope to say, is this essential and if what is essential and let's make sure there's time uh, for students to, um, you know, for dive, uh, deep diving into that. Um, so it means prioritising um, and it means uh, the strategies that come, uh, you know, experienced by a number of these countries that work are around engagement. And the dialogue, the discourse um, that we need is to shift from what we want for what we need. So what we want is what you often experience in um, reforms, educational reforms, what you experience are everyone saying what they want and everything is loaded in, everyone's satisfied that they got their bit in there and of course that's when you end up with an overloaded uh, curriculum. So what we need to do, uh, this is the view that's being uh, discussed through the OECD, is to equip young people to live and thrive in the VUCA world. Uh, we've got some interesting developments with um, not only the 2030 project, UNESCO have a major press, uh, project underway around transversal skills, competencies. The European Commission, you know, following the um, the crisis uh, of mass um, population explosion through uh, migration and the issues that have come with that, um, issues around what citizenship, what national identity means, what uh, tolerance means uh, and of course um, you know you would have seen some countries breaking out of that um, relationship. Uh, this is a very strong concern for Europe at the moment. Um, we have PISA surveys that, uh, uh, the most recent one, the 2015 Collaborative Problem Solving, signalling um, that these things are valued. 
Certainly, you know, uh, literacy and numeracy are assessed through PISA, but um, these other areas are now gaining prominence, so much so that um, global competence uh, in 2018 and creative thinking in 2021. Also, mathematics will be a particular focus uh, in um, 2021 in PISA, and that might you might find will be a different kind of mathematics, not the mathematics, as Conrad Wolfman says, not the maths that's actually taught in schools, that's school maths, um, the maths that actually you need for life uh, and for work and for um, existing outside of school. Uh, so there's uh, um, uh, some work going on in that area in the moment. And of course what this all means is, uh, and hence we've got great leaders that are going to be speaking this, this evening, um, leadership is fundamental here uh, in, in changing to competency-based uh, curriculum and learning. You need evidence um, that this is worth um, replacing some of the existing um, practice and uh, uh, content and you need innovative schools, schools that uh, will progress these ideas. There's a whole lot of these taking uh, place across the world and we're drawing on those in the OECD, um, learning from them because they are actually creating the evidence. I'm heading off to Japan soon and I'll be working with the innovative schools there. Um, they've asked me to come and observe uh, the work that they're doing and see how it relates to this work uh, in terms of competencies. So that's enough from me. Um, and uh, I don't have a question of myself, uh, but you might have a question of me, but let's leave that to the end because um, Greg's making his way. No, I've got Miranda making her way. Oh, well. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. Miranda Jefferson. That's, that's hilarious. <laughs> Given what I'm going to talk about, that's hilarious that I've just suddenly been asked to speak. It is about being agile and adaptive and emerging. Um, so, as I work with schools, I often feel like a physician. I work very closely with school leaders and teachers to promote the healthy well-being of schools. Through compassion, close examination and study, diagnosis, treating issues deeply and holistically beyond the symptoms, exploring what we know and don't know, we take action and learn how to sustain and enrich schools into the future. So how is the healthy well-being of schools related to the relevancy of schools? Michael and I argue in our book, Transforming Schools, that both the healthy well-being and the relevancy of schools are connected and both reside and thrive in the four C's, creativity, critical reflection, communication and collaboration. But to examine the relevancy of schools in the 21st century, I'm going to focus on three questions. Do schools need to be agile and adaptive? Are schools agile and adaptive? And can schools be agile and adaptive? 
So why should schools be agile and adaptive? If the corporate and business sector is under pressure to be agile and adaptive to keep up with rapid change due to digital disruption, automation, globalisation, geopolitics and climate change. So why not schools? But more profoundly, Susan Sontag said, existence is no more than the precarious attainment of relevance in an intensely mobile flux of past, present and future. So in an existential sense, schools need to find their relevancy by being agile and adaptive to the mobile flux of past, present and future. The thing is that agility and adaptability are actually code words for something else. They are code for creativity. So when we ask, do schools need to be agile and adaptive, we are really asking, do schools need to be creative? And we're not just talking about creativity in the curriculum, we're talking about schools as organisations being creative institutions. But is that possible? For creativity to thrive, there has to be, according to creativity scholar Keith Sawyer, both structure and improvisation for the emergence of new ideas. And that's where agility and adaptability come in. Too much structure, that is regulation, rigidity and regimentation, prevents emergent, critical and creative thinking. Too much improvisation and the direction, purpose and shape of thinking is lost or goes askew. You need structures that allow for agility and adaptability. But what do we mean by agile and adaptive structures? Is it agile spaces, furniture and technology in schools? Are these the structures that allow for agility and adaptability? If only if it was so simple. Building a new home with an entertainment room, gym and talking fridge doesn't cure a family's problem with dysfunctional relationships. Last week I was working with the exceptional principal, Robin Evans, and an inspirational group of teacher leaders from Kasula Primary. We talked about structures and what they meant. They discussed how structures are an eco-environment shaped by relationships, culture, climate, processes, purpose, time, energy, technology and spaces. We discussed this as we sat around on comfy sofas in a home with delicious home-cooked Greek food. However, the comfy sofas and the Greek food didn't give rise to agile and adaptive thinking. It merely reflected the agile and adaptive ecosystem being developed by these creative teacher leaders. These educators know that agility and adaptability is a mindset, an attitude, a way of being that needs to be developed, learnt and practised in schools. I believe agility and adaptability is a big challenge for schools because inflexible and non-adaptive structures and mindsets have become the cultural infrastructure. But can this change? Of course I say it can, because I work in schools that make change possible. But what's the common thread in these schools? What do they have? What's the elixir, the Kool-Aid they drink? 
Working closely with schools and institutions, I think the enlightening elixir is this. The leaders and teachers I have the privilege to work with understand that it is agility and adaptability that make schools truly relevant for the 21st century, or any century for that matter. And interestingly, these principals and teachers were already agile and adaptive teachers before we came along. As teachers, they were always agile and adaptive to the needs and potential of their students. As teachers, they were always agile and adaptive learners. This is why they understand that schools need to be agile, adaptive and creative to be relevant. But the other ingredient these school leaders and teachers have is courage. They know that agility and adaptability means being prepared to roam the unknown, the half-known, the nearly known, the nearly known. And it involves working with risk, trust, ambiguity and uncertainty. In schools, we often talk about how we walk out to the cliff to abseil down, to discover new ideas and ways of doing things through the four C's. These schools realise the four C's are abseiling competencies that have to be learnt, lived, practised and refined. It is then that schools can be agile, adaptive, healthy and exciting in the precarious attainment of relevance in an intensely mobile flux of past, present and future. Thank you. Well, don't go away, Miranda. Just, just a question there, um, and then I'll encourage others um, uh, with questions too. Um, I almost got the impression there, though, that you've worked, your work is with people that are already on pathway and... and I'd be interested in knowing, had you, have you worked with those that are sort of rusted on less agile and adaptive? Um, so what, what, you know, uh, how did you get them moving um, compared to those that were already on their way? Yes, I have come across both places, obviously. I thought that might be the case. This wasn't a door. And I usually get in a revolving door and I end up outside on the street. Um, that's the problem. They're not, emergent, they're not agile and adaptive to lead in someone like me. Uh -huh. So in many ways, yes, I do work in schools that see the potential of being agile and adaptive of the four Cs. But then they're a whole organism themselves where there's going to be mixed people in there school environment that are on board and not on board, and this is brand new learning. So it's hard. Um, so I suppose strategically I'm working, in, I'm not working in easy schools, may I say, <laughs> but and, and every school is very different, but I feel we have to show that it can be done. So we work with the willing and able to show people what it looks like because we don't have enough schools that are showing us the four C's as a lived organism of a school. Mm. So you're creating stories. Creating the stories, creating the evidence yeah. so that we can get the, a model out there and yeah. of the possible. Okay. So questions from the floor, one or two? 
Okay, so how do schools, when they're supposed to be agile and adaptive, um, this was what, uh, I was actually, that's a good question, because I was thinking that question is my second question. Um, when you mentioned structures, are those internal structures that they've created or are they um, in structures uh, imposed from outside? So your question is how can they be so agile and adaptive when there are demands made from, at a systemic level? Well, that's what you've got to be agile and adaptive about, how to deal with those very things. But they shouldn't prevent you from being agile and adaptive in the first place. So you have to work with the known, but reimagine what you can have influence on, which is in your own schools. And I, we, we still feel the strictures of things like curriculum and subject silos. They are holding, but in a way, they're, they're there, but we can work around them. That's what creativity is about. You get over obstacles, under them, round them. So we integrate curricula, which make, which you can do and still meet outcomes. You're not necessarily bound by those strictures and structures of the way curriculums are presented. It's the way you use them. So the agency, there is agency there that maybe ah, schools yes. aren't aware that they actually have. Uh, and um, and you, I guess there are, you apologise afterwards if you haven't quite kept within the rules. Um, okay, uh, one more question. But just on that, agency is everything. That's yeah. what we have to teach. Absolutely. And student agency too. Absolutely. But I think one of the ways we can make change is through schools changing. And that's my experience in, in working in education and, and developing new subjects and making changes in schools. It's happened at schools. Top down doesn't work. Bottom up doesn't work on its own. But it's, we can show the possible and that will affect, I think, larger policy structures. Yes. Look, we, I think we can squeeze one more question in. There yes, was a sorry. hand over here. Yep. Um, and I'll try to use my playground voice. That's well. <laughs> um, I think it came, it's more of a comment, I suppose, rather than a question, but it's to do with the notion of courage, which is probably your fifth C. Um, and I, I think that part of that is around schools having the courage to work within the parameters but also call out and question and challenge those Absolute, parameters. Yes. And as someone who works in that um, bureaucratic uh, organisation of which many of us uh, are employed, um, you know, we are looking at the capacity to ourselves step away from the strictures that have been put on us for so long. And it does take the brave in the field and it takes also the brave in the bureaucracy to to work, as you say, from top and bottom to to bring about that change and to make it possible for more people yeah. to yeah. be brave. And I think you're right that building that um, the sustainability to grow from a, a point of strength is really critical in what in the work that you're doing. It's and I, it's it is totally bound up in being create having agency in being creative yourself, being a communicator. Mm -hmm thinking reflectively and collaborating mm. and learning the tools in those things is very empowering. Yeah, it's that word trust. <laughs> That's you know, very good. Trust that people actually, professionals, can make the right decisions. Okay, now, Miranda, can you click the button and we'll see, by magic, who's the next speaker? <laughs> Greg. And it's Greg. <laughs> How can you follow and act like Miranda? 
Um, in a meeting earlier today I had with Phil Lambert, we were talking about an event that's coming up in a couple of weeks' time and um, perhaps I'll be speaking at, and uh, he said, I could see there was something bugging him, but he, I said, well, what's the matter, Phil? He said, well, you know, you've got to be careful. You can be a little controversial. Um, I hope to continue that theme tonight. I'm not going to change, um, make some of those comments about um, which we need, I think, to be honest about. In the um, 15 minutes or so I've got here, I just want to try and touch on sort of the macro issues here. The answer for me to the, the, the proposition here about relevance is that we need a new schooling narrative. It's as simple as that. We've got the wrong narrative. It's had its day. Yet we don't seem to be able to craft that new narrative. We can't get a consensus around the new narrative. We've got competing agendas around the new narratives. We've got educators who disagree with each other. We've got communities who disagree with each other. We've got business. Everybody's got a narrative. Meanwhile, young people are not being served as they should be in our schools. I can sit down there, can I? <laughs> um, this is the dichotomy. I'm not going, you know, I'm so over the 21st century, I'm looking forward to the 22nd. Um, but, you know, the, the difference is that, you know, one model of schooling is there and it's probably the prevailing and predominant narrative. Um, on the other side, society has moved on. And that's the first point I want to make here. We seem to wrap ourselves in this thought that we know how to do this if we can just do that. We actually have missed the boat. And it's not bureaucracies that are holding us back, and it's not teachers that are holding us back. It's just this lack of understanding of how to do the business of schooling in today's world. And I'm deliberately saying today's world because I'm not interested in schools of tomorrow. I'm interested in schools that are fit for purpose today that will be able to be adaptive and agile to do what they do tomorrow. That's somebody else's responsibility. But we take that on and it is a code for, I think I know what to do. Society is now driving the change. It used to be institutions that drove change. All the big businesses that control things, Henry Ford, you can have any model to you like, as long as it's black, are dead. What have they done? They have responded to what? They have responded to the customer. They have responded to the lifestyle. In 2000, Steve Jobs said, we are not in the technology business, we are in the entertainment business because he realised that the technology had reshaped everything. So every organisation except schools have held back from this societal move and our parents are voting with their feet. And it's not strange that you find education gurus, experts, curriculums finding their way onto the internet and offering themselves as alternative to schools. And the rapid rise in homeschooling, alternative methods of schooling, should tell us something. So we're definitely in the brain side. We're in the hard yards. This is brain work. This is knowledge work. And everything that Amanda, uh, Miranda has said is around that knowledge work. I'll just go over that. And what we've done, and our approach is, um, <coughs> this is the controversial part, we've ditched improvement. Not interested in improving schools. 
Why are we not interested in improving schools? Because it's the wrong narrative. We've been improving schools for a century. You only have to open every newspaper or listen to any education guru or shock drop and we're doing a bad job, aren't we? And not only schools are bad, universities are even worse because they don't even understand what's going on in schools. So we're all to blame. The problem is there has been not one improvement program in the last 40 years in Australia or the world, I say, that's actually changed the business of schooling. All it is a repetition of the review mirror. Test them, test the teachers, do this, do that. With all due respect, Phil, no national curriculum or state curriculum ever improved or changed the nature of schooling. A competency-based curriculum in this world does not make sense. How do you express the four C's in a competency-based curriculum. You can do it when you start the teaching and the learning framework, but you don't start from the competency-based curriculum. One of the great travesties we have here in Australia is that the, the federal government didn't trust the state governments and said we needed a national curriculum and dressed it all up in the fact that mobility and people move around so much. And guess what happened? The states ignored them. And yet we seem to have continued on because schools have largely... Um, dismissed that whole agenda. And that's because the narrative is wrong. You only have to look at the performance of schools. Now, I, I don't hold much credibility in the way that the performance is a judge, but certainly there is a flat line and the things that Miranda pointed out, unfactored, in fact, are the sad part of this we're finding increasingly more kids more alienated and being made unwell by schooling. And that's the biggest travesty. But um, if we don't um, say we need to find a different way to do it, it's not going to happen. And what we've done is go into the transformation agenda. We're on about changing it. We're on about building the new narrative. We got the horse and cart and the steam train and eventually we got the rocket to get us to the moon. But the rocket's not going to take us to the stars. We need a whole new way of thinking about it. And Miranda and Michael make this central point in their book, you change one thing and everything has to change. That's where we go wrong. We change the curriculum or we do this or we test teachers or we limit, you know, you've got to get an ATAR of 152 plus, you know, whatever, and all that's going to fix it. It doesn't make any difference. You've got to change everything. You've got to change the nature of teacher, teacher preparation, teacher learning, the way schools are organised. Why do you have to start school on a Monday at 9 o'clock in the morning and finish at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and go to a thing called classroom and be taught by the, in a group of 30 kids who have such a diversity of learning needs but are all treated as if they're exactly the same? It's a nonsense, isn't it? Yeah, right, am I wrong? So where do we go from here? I'm going to finish soon. <laughs> Where do we go from here? We go to the focus in the transformation for us is around an understanding that schooling, we need to learn how to do it. I don't expect our teachers to know how to do it, but I do expect them to learn how to do it because nobody else but them can do it. I can't do it and the bureaucrats can't do it and the politicians certainly will never understand how to do it. But, <laughs> but the ones who do know how to do it, and how do they do it? They engage with the four C's. 
that's their bread and butter. And they find new patterns of working, new ways of working, so that you don't have to come to school and you can change even the definition of a teacher. And the way we approach this, we, um, we're not into your, I hope I don't insult you again, we're not into STEM schools and all that sort of thing. We're into a learning framework that we describe as an experiential learning experience driven by an inquiry cycle. And underneath that, there is so much education theory and practice that I suggest to you is fairly irrefutable. One of the things we ignore in education is all the good research that we actually have and do know. And the book itself is, is a treasury of, of that learned wisdom. So we're not just plucking something out of air, but the, the core of this is around this experiential learning. Now, what's that mean? Well, that means you personalise the learning. Everyone's a learner. You set challenging tasks for kids. You work in groups. You move away from discipline base. Everything that we know needs to be done to reform and then transform schooling. Is it easy? No. Is it life-giving to teachers and kids? Yes, in spades. We are developing the most amazing learning communities and you'll shake your head and you wouldn't even know they're schools and that's one of my aims. You'll be going to school and won't even know you're going to school. How cool will that be? <laughs> so I could spend all night here talking about the experiential thing but the, the point I want to make is we're in a good place because we do know and we have sound theory and we have sound practice to drive that. The final thing I want to... The final point I want to end on is that Martin Luther King in 1967 um, said when he was talking about the, the challenge for the, the American society in dealing with Afro-Americans, he made this point. We are faced with the fierce urgency of the now. We cannot sit back another day and not do something and not do something immediately because fortunately most of our kids are not in school at the moment. But I suggest a lot of them are online doing some learning. But every child at this present time deserves the very best we can in living in a first world country. And the fierce urgency of the now is the final thing that drives me and our leaders in our, our system to, to take the extra, to go the extra mile and to change and innovate. Thanks. Great, thanks, Greg. Stay, can you stay there? Uh, I'm glad you took my advice and decided to be non-controversial. Uh, that was about it. That's about another uh, another place, another location. Um, the thing I love about Greg is, uh, whereas there's been plenty of rhetoric about changing schools, transforming schools, and so on, um, Greg does it. He acts. Uh, and my question uh, to you, Greg, given that um, we've been encouraged by Miranda um, around, uh, you know, being agile, <coughs> adaptive, uh, the changes that you've brought about, which have been significant in uh, your schools, <coughs> have come not without um, critique, uh, placards. Uh, storming, storming the parameter office. I'm making that up. I'm not sure if that's happened or not. Um, what advice do you give as a leader that's been a leader for a long time 
and has you've made changes, you've steered down uh, opposition to those those uh, 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 the opposition to your changes. Uh, what advice do you give others here in the audience about following through on your rhetoric? Um, Phil, Phil realises like some of you might be surprised to know that I'm not universally well loved. Um, I could regale you with stories. Uh, the first time we brought an innovation into one of our schools, um, 47 parents walked out of year four in, in one day, just walked out. And there, there's a follow-up story that I could tell you about. It. I won't. Well, I got one that something went down the road to the local government school, and uh, John Go, the principal down there, who you'd know, it's very interesting. But, uh, the parents said, "We want to enrol our kids. There's a madman running that system. He's doing all these weirdo things." And uh, we wanted to come here, and John uh, said, well, we're trying to do the same. <laughs> and, and, and the father thumped the desk and says, isn't there any bloody normal school around anymore? <laughs> so, um, look, I don't have any magic answer, but I, again, Phil, I'm not trying to um, say you're wrong. I didn't do any of this, and I, I'm being honest in this. I didn't do any of this. The people who did it are our leaders and our teachers in the schools, and some of them are here today. They did the work. All I did, and the agency that I have, is to say, go ahead, and what do you need? We hold them accountable against what I've said, the theory, the practice. This is very, very rigorous word. It's like Elmer, Richard Elmer said, you know, it ain't rocket science, it's actually much more complex. And we built a narrative around how we're doing it. We talk, you talk to them, you, they will talk about learning. So that's how you do it, and you grow it organically. In every other form that um, I deal with, the only answer I ever have to that question is, it's just plain bloody hard work, and you've just got to you've got to stand up and put up with it. Like I'm not in this business to be loved. I'm in this business to make sure every child gets the best possible education they can get, and I take that seriously. And if you find it's too difficult, well, I think that's the answer. And it's the, I call it the three R's. It's radical, relentless and resilient. And you usually find if you're resilient, they eventually give up. And I'm proud to say that those 47 parents, not all of them, but a lot of them came back and we got a few more who actually liked that. So, mm, OK. I think we can see a book coming out. Of course, these, what were they, three R's, uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a follow-up. Uh, other questions? Yes, we've got a hand here and we've got a microphone. Thank you so much, Greg. Uh, you talked about the different dimensions of transformational schooling. Could you tell us, and you talked about the importance of a shared narrative or a common narrative, mm. what do you think that narrative actually is or ought to be? Well, it starts, um, the, the narrative starts with diversity is the norm and one size doesn't fit all. They're the, they're the two. Um, and then you, you build on that. We learn the work by doing the work. I know this sounds like jargonistic, but you learn the work by doing the work and nobody can do the work for you. Every child can learn. Uh, these seem so simple. Every child can learn. Children can do complex... You know, students can do complex things. You are responsible to be a learner. I am not responsible for your professional learning. You are. And you build it like that. And there's, 
while there's a, a common narrative, the story's given life in each of our um, um, in each one of our schools. We, we built, we opened a new school today this year that goes from pre to post. So it starts at age three and goes through to whenever you want to leave or come back. Uh, and it's open from 6am to 6pm. Never been done before. Well, the staff there said, you want to do this? Well, we'll show us how you can do it. They solved all the problems. They created and crafted the narrative around it. And we've learned how to do it and it's going along well. We're opening a new one next year and we're not just going to take that and put it there. The people who are in that school will have to do it themselves. But they will do it knowing they're going to be resourced and they're going to be supported. And that there'll be no sudden switch and say, oh, we don't like that anymore. So you've got to construct the narrative continuously and tell the story and show that it works. And nothing beats, you know, the parents, um, the, the, you know, when they find these sorts of schools and, you know, serving schools in Western Sydney, we've got dormitory suburbs. This has been a spectacular success. Like, it's actually no-brainer. If I say one more thing, it's not related directly to the question, but it's, it's the argument discussion I keep having with politicians. You know, we have a, a, a um, policy framework in this state that treats early learning differently to K to 6, differently to 7 to 12. That model was designed in 1957 and is still here. The policymakers are still thinking K to 12 and somehow we've got these early years. We know globally and we know what the research tells us the earlier the kids are involved in that sort of um, uh, introduction to learning and we're not talking about putting them in, in classrooms and um, teaching them uh, from the front. We're talking about a whole different approach. They're more likely to, um, to improve but it's because, they, you know, the narrative's wrong because it's based on the industrial model. So wherever you see those, this is where I want to come back to your question, wherever you see those, we have to challenge them. We have to challenge them and we have to do something and show this is how it can work. And then they tell the story. Okay. Sorry, so I covered everything? I reckon I saw lots of nods there. Um, okay, another question before we finish. We've got one here and one here, so if we can make them quick. And your, question, and your answer's quick too, Greg. Um, yes. I have a question regarding um, your plans. Do you take into account how the brain functions cognitively when you try and develop ways of teaching? I, I went to like a seminar ages ago and the person said, I don't think the education's broken, but then mentions that with lectures you only tend to retain 10% of information and I'd say that's quite inefficient. Um, if that's a, a code for do you have direct instruction, which is another great criti criticism of, of this model where everybody's sort of collaborating and they're not learning things, uh, the answer is it's not an either or. If you construct it and say, well, I've got to make sure that you know, I'm covering the cognitive side uh, while we're doing something, the brain doesn't operate like that. It's an end and both. Good teachers know that and they're great at constructing that. And when you, if, you're, if, I miss, if I understand what you're saying about the cognitive, when you need to, to learn certain things that the experts say, this is the best way you need to learn them, that's how they do it. But they don't rely on it as, as the total methodology. Okay, we've got a question here. Thank you. Yes, thanks, Greg. A related question, in fact. Uh, 
John Mackey was a one-time professor of philosophy here at Sydney University, and in one of his books he wrote that the order of exposition is the opposite of the order of acquaintance. What that means in English is that when teachers teach, it's the opposite of what students do when they learn. Uh, so I, I guess that uh, if, if we're going to be teaching students, uh, if they're going to be learning, then we have to be giving them something with which they can become acquainted in the learning process rather than actually trying to be teaching them. So I'd like your comment on that. The other thing I'd like to ask you, uh, one of my experiences is that one thing that falls through the cracks of ed the education, the K-12 to model, is that we teach students what to think. We fill up their heads with all sorts of information. One thing we do very poorly is we don't teach them how to think. So what I'd like to do is ask you whether you have in your model and where you have it in your model that we actually spend the time to teach children analytical skills, critical thinking skills and all the things they need to make their decisions later in life and make them useful in their work and not just have a head full of encyclopedic information. Right. Thank you for your My, <laughs> <laughs> slipped another one in there. My... Uh, answer to that question is in the, in the nature of the learning, the framework, and that's why I use the word deliberately not curriculum, it's a, it's a learning framework, this experiential experience driven by an inquiry cycle. The inquiry cycle is perhaps the answer to the first part, that it's a deep dive into thinking and the, the hard stuff. The, these, these four C's are not soft at all, they're, they're very demanding. So the, um, the inquiry cycle it challenges you as a teacher, as a collaborative group working there, and the kids to continue to ask the hard questions. The experiential nature is how you bring all that information together and in these teams that work together, they craft these experiences for us. So you have deep expertise in mathematics and English. So you're not getting rid of that expertise per se. You're pooling it and saying, how can we meet the requirements of the state thing, and here's where we are very good. We meet all the requirements of NESA and our schools. We, we, we haven't had a school deregistered yet, so we managed to do that and still do this other thing. So it's, it's in that nature of that learning framework. And look, we'd be here all night if I went into it. Thanks, Greg. That's, that's great. Okay, uh, can you click the button? We'll see by magic who our next speaker is, and it is Robin. Good evening everyone. I guess I bring the why and the how and the nuts and bolts, not being an academic but a very proud principal. Um, I'm just going to briefly talk to you about my school context and what we're doing at our school in bringing theory into practice. Schools are weighed down by the expectations of curriculum, content delivery and reform. We as a school have started on a journey of shifting that to how we plan, how we learn how we program, how we assess and how we differentiate and integrate a quality delivery of teaching and learning. Our school is a large complex school in southwest Sydney. Our students come from low socioeconomic backgrounds with 82% EALD, many of whom hold refugee status. Our school is the hub of our community and proudly my staff love the jobs they do. It has a tangible feel at our school and it's part of the climate we're creating. 
We continually reflect and refine our actions, our programs and our strategies to ensure all our students achieve their personal best. Our kids really love being at school and our teachers are really conscious of that and in doing so, that in itself makes our school quite unique. The thing that strikes me most about our school is the pedagogical excellence, quality teaching, the practice that's happening in classrooms and the absolute notion of what a growth mindset is. That itself puts us in a great spot for our teachers to grow learners. My staff understands and knows our learners at our school and their needs and their conditions for learning. They treat teaching and learning as a creative process. It's purposeful and relevant to our students. The staff are really developing in the area of acknowledging and discussing how effective their, learn their teaching is and what learning is generated and what it looks like in their classrooms. The goal for us is to create self-regulated and autonomous learners. Our teachers team teach, they share practice, they model for each other, they provide feedback and they provide actions for where we're going next. Our journey started three terms ago and it started with agency, like minds working together to see what was possible with our academic partner, Miranda Jefferson. We have truly unpacked what our purpose as a school is, what our practices are and how we need to authentically collaborate. We have to make sense and we're working on that of what we do and why we do it. And if I, th I think if I ask my staff, why do we do it like that? What, do, what have we learnt from that? Can we do it better? And I challenge their thinking around it. Not to say their practice isn't great, but let's have a look at what it is we do and why we do it. We're focusing on discussions about what works best in our school and our transformation has been guided by our context, our leadership teams and our 4C teacher team. We have focused on praxis, theory into practice and what is actually happening in the classrooms. The why has been a constant frame of reference and the how follows on. Our purpose and how we can clarify what has been happening in classrooms. What we teach, how well we teach it, how deep we teach it and did it have impact. Our staff have continued to focus on collaboration, communication and reflection. All keys to the success about what's happening in classrooms. We're also very big on celebrating the successes. So it's part of that transitioning to where we want our school to be and what has begun to shape our school culture. It's our narrative and it's our story. Our staff is characterised in South West Sydney by novice, experienced and expert teachers. But amongst them all, it's around the pedagogical expertise they have. Our teachers are seeing themselves more as learners and that's characterised by the practices that they, uh, what they're seeing in their classrooms and what they're doing in their classroom. They're informed risk takers and we're conscious about being responsible, critical reflectors, about being creative ourselves, having courage and working collaboratively as communicators. It is essential as a teacher for us to, to underpin what it means to be a learner and to model that. We have strategically set up and continue to find opportunities to allow time, create time to share and discuss. 
There's robust conversations that are facilitated and we tease out the how-tos and why we do what we do. Our teachers are skilled in authentically reflecting on their own practice and we're learning to be adaptive and responsive. In essence, as I said, we are modelling being learners and we too are scaffolded and supported and challenged and provide feedback to each other about where we're going next. We've identified hot spots of expertise in our, on our staff and we're not, and we're, we're all about sharing. I was going to say we're not about sharing. We're all about sharing. We are taking our school from a safe, safe traditional place to a rich, vibrant place. We're adjusting to the social changes in our community and we've systematically focused on how we do what we do. Opportunities are continuing to open up for rich professional learning, instructional leadership, team teaching, observations, cluster meetings with colleagues that are doing the same thing as us, workshops and peer conversations. All these opportunities continue to be delivered in a differentiated manner with a common goal. The challenge for me as a school leader is to navigate the journey, engage all staff and the community and all students. And that's no mean task. As we said previously, it's not about top-down or bottom-up or sideways-in. It's about everybody working together. We try and model a language of hope and possibility. We have high expectations and that's very clearly communicated. The notion of energising learning is our focus. The students' language in classrooms has shifted and walking into classrooms, they speak like learners and they model this through their interaction with their peers and with their teachers. The authentic collaboration continues to mark that success with teachers in how they worked collaboratively, teacher to teacher, peer to peer, teacher to peer and teacher student to our community. We have so much to be excited about at Casula. We're ambitious in our focus of what's possible for our students and our staff. Yes, we are courageous. And the shift has been that in all operationalising this, under strategic direction two of our school plan, we call it successful students. And 4C sits in that domain. As our discussions are unfolding for the 2018-20 school plan, 4C practices are going to overarch and underpin absolutely everything we do at our school. Funnily enough, my Sam, who is part of our executive team, joined Miranda last week as she joined us in our executive meeting. And after that, she came to me and said, you know what, Rob, it's just dawned on me that all this 4C conversation that you continue to have may just have relevance for me. I and, I, and how I operate and how I work with my team. Can I talk to you some more about that? Sometimes at schools, magic does happen. Mm. Thanks, Robin. And um, you've got some of your staff here, and so I'm going to ask you a question not in relation to Casula, but knowing the other schools you've worked in and you've worked in some, mm. you know, quite conservative I parts have. of uh, <laughs> this city. Um, and so in terms of transforming schools, I, I'm well aware of how you did, did that. You'll be like Greg and you'll say, I know, you'll say that it wasn't you, it was all other people and so on. But 
I want to ask a question of you as a leader and also someone now who's got a uh, significant leadership position with the Primary Principles Association. Mm. It's how do you keep um, the focus on learning when there are so many other things that you have to do in your role? Um, you know, dunnies and drains <laughs> and staffing issues, building uh, parents' concerns, a uh, whole range of things that principals have to deal with. Uh, and my observation is that... Um, you know, a good number actually are able to do both incredibly well because both have to be done. Mm. Uh, but others do struggle, and in fact, you know, the dummies and drains become more important than than learning. Um, so, sorry to extend my question a bit longer than it should be. Uh, I guess the the question is, you know. What's the secret to your success in transforming so many schools uh, by ensuring that there's a focus on learning mm. uh, and a relentless focus on learning? I guess you have to be mindful not to be hijacked. What is your core business? It's about kids and what matters and what makes them or enables them to be the best they can be. What sort of, what sort of teacher do you want standing in front of your, your own children? And I keep that in my mind all the time. And empowering staff and giving staff permission to shine, setting free their creativity and challenging them to, can we do that better? You're doing a great job. All that focus, that unrelenting energy, takes a lot of energy um, to do that. And identifying people that can work collaboratively and work together to, to that agency really build success in schools. So, you know, trying to attract like minds in the first instance, um, that's the easy part. The easy part is working with like minds and to the credit of my staff, I mean, they give above and beyond all the time and in many schools that happens. Um, our kids really need the teachers in our school and they're very aware of that and really mindful of knowing their impact. Um, and one of the things that we focus on is the conversation of why we do what we do. So being hijacked with dunnies and drains and everything else that comes in and, you know, the crazy parent and <laughs> everything else that walks through your door, you have to be mindful about what matters most. And I think if you stick to that and your staff are really aware about what how, what value you have on their role and how you create opportunities for them to do the job that they do best and communicating that with, with them, with um, the community and for the kids to understand what the role of the teacher is and their learners as well and modelling that. I'm a learner. You know, I've, like you said, Phil, I've done a number of, of roles and had a number of roles and each each time I've walked away from a school... I take with me a swag of things that I've learnt. And the day you stop learning is the saddest day ever. So, and I say to my staff and to the kids, I'm never too old to learn. I hope I'm never too old to learn. But I think um, being inspired, invigorating, energising um, and being mindful of the greatest gift that we have is impacting on student learning, making them the whole child. That's a focus that we keep very 
very much in the front of our forethinking about the whole child. Um, and certainly in the context we're in at the mo- I'm in at the moment, that really is important and it's integral to a child's learning okay. and their future. Um, I sense there's a couple of themes going through you now. I think of Miranda's presentation of Greg's in your own. There's a theme there about agency and trust uh, there's one that um, what we're not talking about here, it's not just agency with laissez-faire, um, do, you know, choose your own adventure, do what mm. you like. Um, there are some high expectations and there seems to be a common theme here around um, the most important stakeholder in this is, is the students and so long as the focus is always, always there. So that's interesting. Uh, now we've got some interesting questions from the floor, I hope. Yeah? Yeah, one here. Hi. Um, it sounds like you're running an amazing school bringing the theory into practice, but I was wondering to what extent do you feel that when your teachers joined your team, they had gained the ability to turn theory into practice from their teacher training? And how much do you think it was more through working as a team at school and do you think it's important for us to bring more like the practical side of theory into practical teacher training? That's a lot of questions. Um, first of all, um, in terms of every school has a different context and we, we change our practices and we modify and we personalise our practices in each school. But overarching and underpinning everything are the reform agenda, curriculum expectations, what we're guided by. You can't lose sight of that um, and there's certain things that we know we have to get, to get done. But in, in terms of delivery of that, there's no script. So how we unpack curriculum and how we integrate it and how we teach it and what it looks like in the classroom and what it sounds like in the classroom is dependent on your context and what works best for the students, how they learn. And that's the key to the success. So when we're at uni and we're doing, you know, we're the early career teacher, we come with a theory and some element of practice. But it's not until you're in a classroom that that practice unfolds. Um, Our school has a great, a vast quantity of early career teachers from, you know, first year out through to about five or six year out and then we think they're quite experienced after that. Um, and they all come with, with a swag of goods and they, their input and their thinking and their practices are incredibly energising to any staff. But we do what we do at Casula because of the kids we have. So we work together and that's that's the gift of working in a school where there's collaborative practices. It's the conversations, it's the modelling, it's the feedback, it's the great ideas and it's let's try this, let's try this and see how it works, see if we can do it better, see if we can refine it and then move forward from that. And that becomes part of the school culture on learning. So can you, is there, did I answer all of that or some of that? Yep. yep, good Thumbs job. Up. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> okay, one more question. Yes, over here. 
Thank you. Um, Greg, uh, Phil, you just said that the most important thing here was the student. Mm. And my question is, when are we going to really listen to the students and see what yeah. they want out of education and let them have a very, very big part of the journey? Because I think it's about time we really listen to the students mm. and they be a part of their learning and how they want it all set up. Do you know, one of the things that um, I would say my teachers would pride themselves on is student voice. And I think that's about classroom practice and what they value and listening to what students need and how they learn and giving teachers feedback. And that can be quite challenging for some teachers. Oh, that lesson didn't go quite as well as I thought it did. I walked into a classroom today and a first year out teacher had agency boxes on her windowsill. She had a red box, a green box and a yellow box. And she taught a lesson on angles. Just, you know, straight, right, obtuse, acute. And she'd done this great thing and all around the room I could see the learning and they were all talking and they were all doing and they had a response to the lesson. At the end of the lesson she closed it with, when you go, when you hand in your work for me to have a look at and share with you, put it in one of the boxes. The box that you said, I nailed that, I got that, I understand what you're talking about. Another box was around, mm, sort of got it, needs some more work. And the other box was, didn't have a clue what you spoke about the whole lesson, didn't get it. And interestingly enough, the teacher said to me, let's look at who puts what in what box because sometimes the kids are really owning their learning and they can understand and acknowledge, yeah, I have it and some are requiring that feedback and the extra support. And that agency and that communication that the teacher has with the students has been really reflective of where they are. And her conversation to me was they're getting better at owning their learning and taking responsibility for their learning. We have a year one class who the teachers work collaboratively and it's we don't have a school that opens up very well, but we create opportunities for that to be. And when you walk into the room, one of the focuses is about listening and having a focus on what someone else is saying, how you look at a person, how you make eye contact with them, how you give them feedback. And there's always that child in your class that goes, oh, don't ask me, I'm going to hide, I don't want anyone to look at me. And how we support each other and how children learn to do that in a classroom and how they they encourage each other and how they have to listen and add on to. And if, you, if six-year-olds can do this, so can, so can any student in any classroom. And they do it really well. But it has been structured. It has been explicitly taught. It's been modelled. And all those things build the capacity of students as learners. That's... Great, great question, great answer. I was going to comment that um, a tentative forum... Uh, a student agency forum uh, a few weeks back and there were students from various countries uh, at that, Kazakhstan, Japan, uh, this state, very articulate uh, group from New York. Um, and uh, the interesting thing, when these people, these students were very, very articulate and, and very clear about their views about um, the relevance of schooling and, mm -hmm. and uh, in our discussions about them afterwards uh, around student agency, the, the real interesting element we're looking at is, so that was, you know, there's A to Z 
Um, if they're example of Z, you know, an endpoint where you you really want agency of that kind, how do you get from A through to there? What's the progress look like? What does agency at its least look like? Uh, and no doubt, you know, we've all seen versions of that. Um, but how how do you transfer, you know, transform, um, progress? to that kind of agency and what's the kind of uh, support, the scaffolding needed by teachers mm. to enable kids and schools to um, create the conditions for that. So we had some very good discussions around that. Um, but you're right in asking the question because um, uh, if we're talking about transforming schools, uh, we need to get advice on how best to do that for the main stakeholders. That's absolutely the case. It's kind of it's kind of that um, knowing that we're not tipping information into the top of their head, the flip top. They need to know that they have control of what they're learning as well, and what what they need to know, and what their inquiry is, and the responses from the teachers or the teams of teachers builds that. You encourage and you're trying to elicit their thinking about what they're doing because we all think differently, and and embracing that and learning from each other, and that's what our teachers are modelling learning from ex from each other as well as what we're modelling for students in our school. That's great. Okay, I reckon Michael's next. Uh, good evening everyone. It's wonderful to see uh, learning nerds like myself here uh, who actually care about the future of education. And I thought, seeing such a special night, I might let you in on a secret. Um, that secret is that I've always had a relationship between uh, emotional matters and writing. So when I was a uh, teenage boy, uh, I always wrote bad poetry when I got my heart broken. Uh, obviously, there's quite a lot of bad poetry emanating from um, me. Um, and these days, when I get cranky, uh, I write an op-ed. Um, which is or an opinion piece, which is pretty much what I think that's what everyone who writes an opinion piece does nowadays. Um, and I got a little bit cranky last week about uh, everyone talking about disruption and saying, well, if we're going to disrupt education and we need to disrupt education, we've got to do more MOOCs. We've got to do more apps. We've got to create more machines to do this. The thing that made me cranky about that is it completely misunderstands the whole transformation agenda. It misunderstands that if we give our lives over to machines, if we allow machines to make decisions for us, that, that will actually just be the end. And actually in education above perhaps any other sector, teachers, students, educators must stand up for the key things that make education what it can be, compassionate, hopeful, enlivening. And people are going to make those changes, not machines, not MOOCs, not apps. And I suppose what I want to argue for today is that this complex technology, which is schools, it's an incredibly complex technology, is actually in need, as Greg says, of complete restoring. We need to start the story 
again. Of course, there's components of this story that already work. We've got compassionate and skillful teachers. We've got energetic students. We've got even some systems that work. But we need to start thinking about how we can reconfigure those things that are amazing, how we can think about them again. And we need to do that because we have all these extraordinary problems staring us in the face. And we've got all these extraordinary things going on in the world of automation, in the world of big data. All of these pressures which we feel in our own jobs and our own lives are actually going to be the lived reality for the five-year-old in kindergarten today, but at a greater rate. As you probably are already aware, Osborne and Frey, uh, who are two researchers from Oxford, talk about 47% of roles that exist today will no longer exist in a decade's time. And for those of you who are thinking, well, that's okay because I don't drive an Uber, it's not just an Uber. It's law, it's medicine, it's everywhere. And so what are we going to do in the face of that? As Greg's kind of already charged us, are we going to just sit there and allow kind of irrelevance to wash over us? Or are we actually going to consider uh, what our generation, what this generation of educators, and I'm sure many of you are in the, in the room are educators, whether it's primary, secondary, tertiary, or, or many of you are parents, what is it that we are going to do today about schools today that is going to change it for our kids and the kids in our care and the people who will have to take the responsibility for facing the challenges of climate change when they become acute, for facing the changes of global uh, migration movement, for facing the changes of antibiotic, antibiotic immunities and, and the, the diminution of those. How are we going to, what are we going to do today what changes are we going to make today that will change the world for those kids and give them the best possible chance? In some ways, we've spent a lot of time, a lot of years, perfecting a steam engine. And we're still doing it. I hear a lot of talk about effect sizes, and that's fine, but actually, we are working, we are tinkering with an old model. We are tinkering with a model uh, whose fuel source is going, whose destinations are running out and are becoming irrelevant. And yet we still do it because I think some of us lack the imagination to do anything else or the courage or the trust or the wherewithal. And I think uh, what many of us have already said tonight is true. We really need to start to think about the kind of the moral, um, the moral kind of dimension of this. If we don't actually take, take this moral kind of charge, if we don't engage with this problem, what will we say to the students in 10 years time? Oh, uh, well, you know, the department was, was very difficult. Um, parents didn't want us to do it. Uh, well, NAPLAN. Um, <laughs> you know, what are we going to say? And, I mean, those responses sound uh, ridiculous, but, of course, they're the responses that we all know are true and we've all faced, many of us, as educators. We've all talked to parents who've said, why are you doing creativity? Why will that matter? 
We've all spoken, probably, many of us have spoken to to parents uh, about the four C's and why the four C's matter. I know Kasula has had that discussion time and time again. And so we need to think about the, the kind of moral imperative that we have as educators to and that this generation of educators to lead the change that we know is required. So, does that look like? My call tonight is actually that we need to bring back learning. The four C's are not new. I was asked on, weirdly, I was interviewed by 3AW about this. Why? I don't know. But I was interviewed by 3AW in Melbourne and the uh, guy on 3AW said to me, I think his name was Terry, or it could have been, uh, said to me, why? So did you guys come up with the four C's? I said, well, I don't know. I don't know if I can claim creativity, collaboration, critical reflection <laughs> and communication as my own. I'd love to. But actually, we are talking about things that Dewey was talking about, that Eisner was talking about, that Maxine Green was talking about. Many of you who were in, t in teachers' colleges in the 1980s and 1990s and the 19, if you were there in 1940, you may have heard these discussions. They're not new. And yet, as Greg said, we've had the evidence around this stuff for years and years and years and we have not implemented it. And why have we not implemented it? We need to disrupt and remake the complex technology of schooling by freeing teachers to remake learning for a 21st century world. And this is about interdisciplinary learning. It's about, and I'm looking at the high school teachers here, and I was a high school teacher, and I loved my faculty, and I loved my subject, and I thought everyone was not as good as my subject, and I thought I was a better teacher than everyone else. But here's, here's, the, here's the tip. We're not, and the other subjects are as good as you two. And actually working with those teachers and those subjects is not only a great idea, it is the only idea that is going to de-silo learning. So it's about thinking about school as an interdisciplinary experience. That's not to say we stop doing disciplinary things. That's not to say we stop thinking about disciplinary knowledge. But we've got to do disciplinary and interdisciplinary knowledge. We've got to focus on the application of connected knowledge and skills. I mean, we've talked about the four C's and we'll talk about them more ad nauseum until you buy all the books. But, um, but actually, and quite seriously, if we don't start explicitly teaching these aerosol words, these concepts which we've sprayed out in the world in curriculum documents and policy documents for the better part of two decades and hardly given teachers any support or structures to teach them, we're actually going to start to continue to kind of perpetuate the steam train mentality. And I suppose my argument is that we need to focus on structures and skills that put incentives in the system and put uh, real drivers in the system for teachers to care about and teach the four C's rather than just have them in policy documents and just hope that someone will implement them somewhere even though we're not going to tell you what they are. And so I, very seriously, we have to think about how we build those things into the system. I think we need to close the pedagogy, pedagogy policy gap that I'm just talking about there. If we demand things of teachers, we've got to provide structures, frameworks and professional learning to make it happen. And I'll point the finger back at myself here, and we've got to do that in higher education. 
If teacher education is going to remain relevant, we need to take seriously the changes that are going on in schools and need to take place in years to come. And lastly, I think we need to have a renewed investment in hope. That might seem like a kind of funny thing to say at the end of uh, something like this, but if we believe human flourishing to be what education is about, and that's partly what I think education is about, we need to double down on, on building these skills and capacities so that our students can be critically hopeful about the future. Seems to me that so much with, that we hear about education is about how it is a diminution of the person rather than having the person at their full capacity. And I think as educators and most educators in the room, no one went into education or learning to shrink. We came into it to expand. And I think this this uh, quote from Di Smith, who uh, is head of the Arts Council, Wales, really sums it up for me. If we ask who then should benefit from the wealth of possibilities education could bring, the answer is a trumpet call, the dispossessed and the marginalised for whom it is an exit from powerlessness and an entrance to the interchange of citizenship. If we want to change schools, the time is now. If we want to change schools, we have to recommit to learning. If we want to change schools to make them places of critical hope and critical change, it is actually within our power to do so, and I firmly believe that. We've got to provide teachers with the, techno with the, the, the technology of the, the skills and the technology of schools to change schools. We've got to provide systems with the drivers and the impetus to make schools better, richer, more engaging places. And we've got to build new narratives so that we can actually tell stories to ourselves and other people about why school matters and why it matters for 21st century. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Um, please don't go. Okay, I won't. Uh, you, you mentioned subject areas there and, um, and you know, there, if there is a reality, the reality is that the disciplines have been there for a long, 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 long time. There's a lot of people that are invested, invested their careers, their um, PhDs in them, uh, and uh, people see themselves, some, you know, subject area teachers call themselves not a teacher but a mathematics teacher and, and so mm. on. So, I'm interested in your comment about subjects, disciplines. Is there no place for them? Or is there a place but it's, uh, uh, it has a place <coughs> of some kind? Uh, yeah, I don't think we can get away, well, I don't think we want to or we can get away from subject disciplines because unless you have a disciplinary knowledge, interdisciplinary work is bankrupt in my view. There's nothing to talk about. There's nothing to exchange. I think the problem then becomes what happens in disciplines, and which is we build knowledge to the exclusion of all other knowledge and we make knowledge competitive. My view is knowledge shouldn't be competitive. Knowledge should be integrational and linked. And so how we... And I, I don't think this is a, a, I don't think we know the answer yet. And I think places like Casula and many of Greg's schools are investing and thinking about the answer. But how we work 
on the kind of deep structures of schooling which prevent that, and in universities as well, I think that's the task, especially in high schools. In primary schools, the, the work that Miranda and I do, we find relative acceptance for that. But in high schools, there are actual barriers as well as kind of uh, metaphorical barriers. Okay. Good. So that would be my take on that. Okay, questions from the floor. Um, so you mentioned like a bit of incentivization of implementing the four C's. Um, yeah, I'm still a pre-service teacher, so I mean, maybe it's naive, but uh, how would you, what kinds of examples of ways of bringing that about would you suggest? I suppose my, what I think about are what are the incentives, what drives schools at the moment? And what drives schools at the moment is testing, uh, most of the time. Uh, and I think that's out of control. I, I think many teachers feel oppressed by testing, uh, and it stopped them uh, engaging with learning and teaching. So I think you need to recalibrate that, but you also need to create form, forms of learning and assessment that are integrated that actually uh, assess and le the learning and assessment that actually relates to the four C's. Like, uh, there'll be a lot of, uh, there's a lot of discussion about why well, you couldn't possibly assess creativity. But the arts have been assessing creativity for a hundred years. Uh, the, there are forms and models of this kind of thing all over the place. Uh, and I suppose the imprimatur of a system like Greg's saying, we care about this, this is part of our future, we need to engage with it, is really part of that process as well. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's paying teachers more to, you know, for every C they teach. Um, maybe we could try that. Um, but, but I do think there, there, is, there is a real role for when systems align with what teachers understand and know to be the way learning can be really effective, then, then things start to change. And I, you know, I know everyone, it's a bit like um, Paul Keating says, you know, if you ask any economist, they'll say mac macroeconomics, you know, or, you know, that, that's what the galah in the pet shop says. But it, it, Finland is actually a good example of where that has happened. They had a system, it was broken, they recalibrated it. It's not perfect, it's not exactly like what we do here, absolutely not. But it's, a, it's an example of what can happen, and Kasula is another example of what can happen. Okay. One more question. Yes. Yes, you can. I know. Oh, thank you. Um, as a teacher, I want to embrace this paradigm shift that you are suggesting. As an English teacher, currently navigating a similar paradigm shift with the curriculum changes. Yeah. With a focus on learning, not testing, how do you reconcile the fact that, as a high school teacher, our end game for a lot of our students is a test to access more learning. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but what kind of learning? Oh, uh, so uh, I come from you know relatively high socioeconomic areas, so a lot of our students are geared towards university, and what we're finding is we want to. Oh, so this is this is about how do we do the HSC best to get a better ATAR so they can get into a university degree, which is similarly not inspiring. Yeah, and I no. is that what I, you're saying? Yeah. But. I want to, and we want to as a profession, 
embrace these dynamic learning models. And it's yeah. you were talking about barriers before. I think that is the HSE is an incredibly significant barrier to an extent. Absolutely. And I apologize, apologize for being flippant. Um, <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying because, I mean, I was doing the same thing when I was a, an English and drama teacher. Um, I think, you know, there, there's a top and bottom discussion to that. But I actually think in terms of creativity, uh, if we just think about creativity, for instance, if young people understand the creativity inherent in Jane, Jane Austen's work, they are going to be able to deepen and extend their responses. If they collaborate more effectively around some of the science projects they're doing in science, they are going to be able to understand the science better, I hope, but also they'll understand collaboration better because they'll have experienced it firsthand. So I'm not actually arguing for an either-or, and, you know, the HSC needs reform if we're going to get align it with this as well. But I actually think that, that this way of doing things is not anathema to doing well in the HSC. In fact, I would argue, and I think Miranda would argue, that this actually deepens the experience of the HSC and brings it more back to being about learning rather than this race up the ATAR ladder. Okay. Okay, uh, we've reached the point now where I'm going to ask a question to all of our members here. One question, uh, and then we might have time for some other questions before we, we finish up. So if the panel members could turn their microphones on. I want to, uh, I want, uh, panelists, I want you to uh, consider this. Uh, you know the elevator conversation. You, you get into a lift and uh, there's someone there who... Uh, here's your opportunity. Uh, it's not Terry from 2, 3, wherever in, in uh, Melbourne, but it's Malcolm and and Gladys, in, in, in the lift opens up, you have the opportunity to say what's needed to transform schools. So you've only got a very quick opportunity to get your point across. I know you're going to say, I don't care, I don't want to worry about politicians. Uh, please just pretend that you do just to help me through this. Uh, Miranda. Here's your lift's open, there's Malcolm and Gladys. What are you going to say to them about transforming schools? I think that we've, we've deeply got to start noticing the world and ourselves and critically reflect on that. And I want children and teachers and schools to start a culture of thinking, of of being able to critically reflect on the world around them and have agency. Doors have closed. <laughs> and Malcolm and Gladys are stunned. You know, they're, they're, they're absolutely stunned. Robin. Third floor, Four. white good. <laughs> Alrighty. Um, what I'd like to share with them is the notion that it's about passion and it's about purpose and it's about backing yourself and believing that there is great things possible for students, no matter from high socioeconomic, low socioeconomic, we all learn from that. And as um, educators, we need to model and lead that, and it has great impact on students. Wow. Okay. So they're equally stunned, and then Greg gets in. 
Thank you, Phil. Um, I'd just simply ask them a question. Do you want your children and grandchildren to be able to um, help shape a world full of peace and hope and have a thriving future? Oh. Of course they say yes. Grandparents love those sorts of things. That's right. And hopefully they don't tell you about all the programs and the money they've spent and you know, do a pitch there because who gets in next but Michael? Well, they've got an unlucky lift. But um, <laughs> I was going to say something uh, kind of thoughtful and reflective like Greg, but I'd probably say to them something like, you're wasting billions on an outmoded model. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's right. And then the opposition leaders get in, so here's a chance to say, here's your pitch, here's your opportunity. Okay, uh, we're almost there. Uh, any other final questions that people would like to ask that they haven't had the opportunity you can pick out any one. I've got two hands here. Uh, we've got the microphone coming here and then it's your turn over here, okay? Hi, thank you. Um, we're seeing so many other professions change and adapt to what the world's like and we want to create an environment in our schools for our students. What about our teachers? Uh, I think that the major problem is, and, and, you know, given all the things that... I've said about teachers, and uh, they're critical on this. The problem we have with teaching today is the default position is, and the default position of all teachers generally is, I know. And that's wrong. The default position should be, we learn. Because when you say, I know, well, that's all well and good, but I know what works for me, and I'm going to go in and teach them that way. That's the problem. So it's the shift from I know to we learn. Right, and I guess if uh, you're encouraging teacher agency and it's all about I know, that's not actually helpful agency. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, anyone else want to answer that question? No? Nope. Nope. Okay, <laughs> yes, over here. And I'm not sure we'll get the microphone to you in time. Oh, does that mean I get to go? Oh, you slipped in without me knowing. Yeah, thanks for the thought-provoking discussion. Um, the thing that you're making me reflect on most is that all of you are suggesting we need to change things now and not wait until tomorrow or next year. But what I'm reflecting on as you speak is that it's such an emotional investment. You talk about passion, you talk about energy, and I think I'm thinking about <laughs> colleagues around the room who might be emotionally exhausted um, from the energy that that requires. And I just wonder what advice you have to help people make that change in the system and the structures and the constraints within which they're working yeah, today. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, so the welfare of teachers and educators has to be taken into due consideration here, how to, how to bring about change, um, but in a supportive way, uh, given that, you know, they've probably been, you know, reformed out almost in so many other ways. Uh, points from... Yeah, Robin, I'm going like to jump in on that, because um, we have a high level of energy at our school, and I'm very mindful of burnout. But what it, what it seems to me is that success generates more energy. 
And the teachers are becoming really conscious of catching the kids doing amazing things and race down to the office or invite me into a room to, to catch the kids doing it. And whilst it is energising, I don't think it's fatiguing either um, because it's just good practice in teaching. And teaching by nation is, is exhausting. And we hit the wall, we're reporting at the moment, um, and that takes its toll. But the day-to-day -day purpose of what we do and why we do it, because it is energising, it does motivate us. Um, and I think that's the success story. I think that's what really keeps us going. And focusing on what is actually working and, and celebrating that. Mm. It's actually, uh, I mean, I, my own research from years back, the, the thing that really leapt out to me through that work was leaders... Uh, schools um, are able to manage, uh, cope with change uh, and significant change if they've got leaders that actually are leading uh, and effectively uh, are able to help them understand what's important from what's not with all the other things that they do or might want to do. And those schools where you don't have that leadership, that's where um, the, the staff feel o overloaded. Uh, last question. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Can I just add to that? Whoa. Can I just add to that? Oh, we've got some stereo going on here. Um, Greg first and Robin in return. Well, the way the frame, Chris, I understand it, a lot of that emotion of it is because people are frustrated with what's happening now. My answer to that is when you, when teachers take control, and I, I don't believe in it, I don't do any empowerment, people take that responsibility themselves. When they do that and they own their own profession, boy, I tell you, you don't have to worry about emotional drain. You have another problem. You have to stop, stop them and slow them down. The frustration is because of what's happening now. That's the emotional. When you provide the scaffold and the okay and the support and the time, people do rise. And it's like the cream on the top comes up the cream on the top comes up and people, and it's contagious. They want to know what's happening in that classroom, why they're getting the results they are. And whilst it's energising, it doesn't fatigue them because the more they do, the more they want to do. And it's just about best. It's actually joyful. It we is. actually are bringing joy back into school. So oh. that's an exhausting emotion, actually. Yeah, can't have any of that. Okay. <laughs> Uh, my, my question is in, uh, I guess, two parts, but related. Um, so there was a bit of talk from Greg about research and how, what we know about research. And um, I wonder um, how you can back up research with innovation. So when you start to do something and you want to do something, you can't say research has said that this is what will work because sometimes you just want to try out and see if it works. And then sometimes it works in this context, but it doesn't work in another. Um, so that, I guess that was more of a comment than a, a, a question. But then, um, then when um, Rob, Robin, sorry, was talking, then she talked about how her kids are very happy and how we're very effective, or at least that's what I picked up from the talk. And then I again wonder, how does she know that the kids are happy? How does she know that she's being effective? 
And then I have um, the last person, sorry, I forgot your name, um, to saying, you know, we have to, we have to do uh, without the testing and we have to, oh, sorry, I don't know, that, that might be too radical, but you, you're saying there is too much testing, etc. And so um, I guess my question is, how do you decide what is effective education? Because, and I can... Uh, back my question with an anecdote. When I was at uni doing teaching, uh, like to become a teacher, um, I was already teaching in a school and we had the question about um, if you were to decide what we teach in schools, what would that be? And we had all different questions about what was important to us. And I guess if you ask that in a community, everybody will have a different answer. So who decides, you know, what is valuable if not the students? Mm. Good comment there, and I mean it's about evidence base there, and um, and are you just responding to people's opinion and, and passion, uh, and you know, are kids there to experiment with? Um, uh, would any of the panel like to respond about how you actually um, hold out uh, in terms of innovation when you may not have the evidence, even though the work that you're doing is actually to create the evidence? Um. Innovation is not just letting a thousand flowers bloom. Innovation is hard work, it's very sophisticated, and it has to be planned. Um, it's trial and error. It's like, it's like you know, yeah. seeing what works doesn't work. It's an incredibly evidence-based scientific process. And, and I don't use evidence, I don't like the term evidence-based, sorry. No, it's, I never do I, but I'm just... Except, I'm not trying to argue with you, Brad. But no, no. <laughs> since we work together, but evidence-informed. Evidence I mean, I heard Louise Knoll talk about this, this recently. Evidence-informed. But what we encourage um, is that you continue to reflect. That's why that inquiry cycle is so powerful. And it brings with it a methodology of continually reflecting on the, the practice, testing the hypothesis, hypotheses, why didn't it work, why didn't it... Why does it work? Why didn't it work? Um, and then, whether it, uh, how you can then grow that, because you just can't take an innovation and then transplant it into another. Uh, so mm. it, it is an iterative process, as Rand said. It's trial and error, but it brings a rigour. You must have a rigour in it. The work that our schools are doing is very different, but they are not experiments. Mm. I'm glad you agreed in the end there, Michael. Can yep. I also say, I think. Um, we like to believe that uh, there's a link between research and innovation in schools, but there's not usually. Like, there's a bunch of research that talks about arts education being incredibly powerful, incredibly useful, and, and it's not actually at the top of what happens. It's not even near the top. Um, but having said that, I think we need to have a culture that's, that, that puts innovations in places and, and, and researchers those innovations in a joined up way. At the moment, you know, you've got universities over here doing all sorts of research, you've got schools doing all sorts of innovation, and often the two don't meet in the middle. Mm. I suppose what I'd argue for, in this new way of thinking and being, if we are going to change things, that we need a really joined up way of working together around, under, and really a strong partnership <coughs> understanding how to make that work, mm. how to put innovations in place, how to research them. Uh, and how, how to get outcomes for kids yeah. that are actually evidence. So the innovation with rigour. Robin? Just working around what we have in place. You know, if we had a magic wand, two stars and a wish, what would change, what's good and what works. One of the things that, 
that I'm constantly reflecting on is the notion that we're bound by NAPLAN, we're bound by testing, a year's growth for a year's teaching. I've got that, I understand that. But how we, how we triangulate our data, how we use student voice, how we use teacher voice and teacher impact and teachers' noticings are really critical to how we teach what we do in order for the kids to be able to access things like NAPLAN and assessment tasks. It's the rigour with which we use what works best in our schools and it's overlaid, how they, how they go through the NAPLAN process, how they do a writing task, how they do it, what we do, what, what is our writing cycle, what does that bring to the fore, what is a rich task and what makes it rich and how the kids interrogate their learning and how they reflect on it and what they say about where do I need to go next, what made that a good piece of writing. And when our kids can have that voice, our teachers in turn are modelling that but also being responsive to that. Okay, we haven't got any more time. Uh, we've got time to break before we have the fabulous launch of the fabulous transformative um, school, transforming schools. But would you join me in congratulating and thanking our collective fabulous panel?